Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sociology. I'm your host, Annie Sepukayat. New Books in Sociology is one of the many channels in the New Books Network, a volunteer-driven project where we interview authors about their new books in different fields. This gives listeners the opportunity to learn about new books and new ideas from the authors themselves, and will hopefully make everyone dash to the bookstore or library to get a copy of these great books. Today I'm going to talk to Ian Sampson, author of the book Paper, an Elegy, published by Harper's Collins in 2012. Ian Sampson is the author of the Mobile Library Mystery Series, and he lives in Ireland. He is a contributor and critic for publications like The Guardian, The Daily Telegraph, The London Review of Books, and The Spectator. He is currently a professor at the University of Warwick, and in this interview, he is going to discuss, you guessed it, paper. Hello and welcome to New Books in Sociology. Today we are talking to Ian Sampson about his book, Paper and Elegy. Hello, Ian. Hello, Annie. Thank you very much for having me. It's it's absolutely a joy and a privilege. (laughs) Wow. Um, I don't think anyone's ever been that enthusiastic. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, To start off with, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to write this book? Um, yes, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not a sociologist at all, I should say. I have absolutely no credentials in that area whatsoever. I am, in fact, a novelist and a journalist, a critic, a broadcaster. I live in Ireland, and I am currently uh, a professor at the University of Warwick in England. And I became interested in writing about paper and the history of paper, I suppose, a couple of years ago um, when I bought a... Um, a mouse, a new mouse for my computer 
and uh, it was a really one of those really fancy, very whizzy, very impressive things without any um, uh, cables or anything like that. And I got it home and I used the mouse for about a month or so, and then the mouse stopped working, and I couldn't get it to work again. No matter what I did, change the batteries, etc., etc. So I took it back to the shop, and when I took it back to the shop and explained to the man that the mouse wasn't working anymore, he said, "Oh, that's that's very very common." He said, "The problem is that if you if you have one of these new fancy mouse, uh, when you turn it over and you take the back off, you see that the, the batteries kind of hang there like low hanging fruit, and the problem is is that the, the connection breaks off, and so he says, all you need to do is take a couple of pieces of paper and jam in a couple of pieces of paper to ensure that the batteries fit snug inside the mouse, and sure enough, I got a few tiny little pieces of paper, rammed it in, and the mouse has been working fine ever since. And it struck me that it was ironic that this fabulous piece of sleek, wonderful kit um, had to be fixed by using this old paper technology. And that rather amused me, and it started to make me think about the role of paper in our lives generally. So I started to gather together lots and lots of my own kind of notes from my reading and thinking about paper, not just as a form of uh, communication technology, but as a, a ubiquitous man-made product that we use in all sorts of different ways in our everyday lives. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, in your, on the cover of your book, uh, you have a quote by J.M.W. Turner, first of all, respect your paper. So why should we respect our paper? Uh, well, paper. Paper is a is a is a human is a precious human resource. Obviously, paper is made mostly still from wood pulp, uh, and in order to make paper, uh, it takes huge amounts of also water and electricity, and it's pumped full of chemicals in various ways when you make the, the, the pulp. Uh, so this is an extremely precious human resource. We have used it for the past 500 years. It has enabled us basically to build the building blocks of civilization um, on which uh, you know everything that we, we do and uh, uh, our everyday activities activities are based, uh, but it's certainly a resource that we have to, like any, we have to have careful stewardship of it. So I suppose part of what I was doing in the book was also trying to look at the history of the manufacturing of paper, what the future of the manufacturing of paper might be, and also at the ways in which paper is being superseded in technological terms. Obviously, it's a, the technology has been around really for about 2,000 years, obviously, from, from China, but we've really been using it, um, you know, at a, at a hell of a rate, only relatively recently, since about the mid-19th century, uh, when wood pulping machines um, were invented and it allowed us to have this massive cheap supply of wood pulp in order to, to make paper. So I just thought I would look at all of those questions about the history of paper, the manufacturing of paper, its use, um, and where, it, where we might be going with paper in the future. You have to kind of wonder, if it started in China so many years ago, how did it get 
halfway across the world. How did it spread ah. um, to the point where it's ubiquitous everywhere? I'm so glad you asked that question because you basically have a drip. So, so the, the story goes, or one version of the story, the invention of paper goes about 2,000 years ago. There's a man uh, who's a uh, it works in the court of the emperor in China. He's called Kai Lun, and he and he writes down an account of these people who uh, are making this stuff, which involves them getting sort of vegetable fibers of some kind, mashing them down, mixing them with water, and then getting a mesh and straight laying down this kind of pulpy stuff into the mesh and then draining off the water and drying this material so that suddenly they produce this stuff that can be used to write on, it can be used for all sorts of other purposes. Wrapping, uh, as a, not only as a communication device, but obviously it's been used for clothing, it's been used for building purposes, etc., etc. How does it get from China? How does it move across? It basically moves kind of in a, if you look at a map, it starts in China and it moves in a westerly direction gradually, moves, uh, I mean, over hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, it basically moves up uh, eventually into uh, Europe and then across, uh, and I think the first paper mill um, that I was looking at uh, in England, the first paper mill is is, is relatively late in, in in the UK where I'm from. Uh, it's about I think 1500s, early 1500s. Um, so it takes a long time for the West to catch up, and obviously then the, the really big explosion. Then the next big explosion is with uh, the Gutenberg Press, and then the next big explosion after that, the age of paper, if you like, is ushered in really in the 19th century when we have enough cheap raw materials to make the stuff, uh, which is wood pulp, because before that, all paper was made from, or pretty much, uh, was made from cotton fiber uh, and other kind of um, other plant-based material. As soon as you have wood pulp that can be produced really, really cheaply uh, and quickly, then we were into our age of paper in which really everything um, that we've um, kind of governments, politics, everything that we've been uh, uh, become accustomed to for the past 150 odd years has been created through paper, paper records. Mm -hmm. So why call your book Paper and Elegy if uh, basically your whole book talks about how paper is not dead in the least? Yes, I think uh, probably I would have, uh, on reflection, I might have called called the book Paper a Celebration, but that sounds rather weak. And um, so I thought if I called it paper, and it is also, I mean, there's no doubt that paper in certain, for a paper production is increasing and paper consumption is increasing, but the one particular use of paper, which is to say its use as a communication device, is is dwindling in terms of particularly publishing of books. And so I suppose as a bookish kind of a person, I wanted to acknowledge that everyone seems to be uh, convinced that the paper book is going to, if not disappear, is going to become a kind of niche or novelty or kind of elite item. And what we're going to be doing, uh, and obviously lots of people are doing already, is they're going to be consuming information electronically, digitally, rather than on paper. So goodbye. Do you think that, 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 that will happen when um, bookstores are basically, I know a lot of them have gone out of business already, but um, do you think there will be a time when people won't really buy books anymore and they'll be just the relics? 
Uh, well, I've, I've got an uh, e-book reader, and I don't know about other people. I find it very extremely convenient. It's very handy. It is, um, you know, it's, it's not particularly elegant or pleasant. I suppose we, the truth is, as a culture, we are addicted to books, not necessarily as communication devices, but as things, as objects, with the, to do with the, the smell of paper, the touch of paper, the idea that books do furnish a room, which indeed they do. So they have provided us with um, pleasures that are not simply to do with the consumption of information or data. The data that they store and that um, kind of they transfer from one person or one generation to another uh, can be transferred and stored in other ways. And why shouldn't it be? It's been a great technology. The book as a piece of technology has served us very well for the past 500 years, but that doesn't mean it needs to serve us well for the next 500 years as well. Sure. Do you find ever that, because um, I find that I also have um, an e-book reader and, you know, regular books, obviously, and uh, I find that it's a lot harder to remember a book if I don't read it on paper? Do you find that as well? Yes, I think that's a very, I, I, so there are a number of studies, I think, conducted um, on the kind of processes of reading, the, the difference between reading on paper and reading digitally. And I talk about some kind of studies um, in, in the book as well, which is to do with, uh, the, you know, uh, attention, forms of attention and uh, kind of all of the neurological and uh, physiological um, processes that go into reading. And I think, uh, obviously, a lot of us, I suppose, Suppose uh, certainly I would read with a pencil in my hand, which is very, very difficult to do if you're using an e-book reader. Um, but yeah, obviously you can mark things up, you can mark text up on e-book readers, but it's not quite the same. So I suppose you're directing your attention in a particular way with a book, and uh, that's, I would have thought, in many ways beneficial. But at the same time, what do you need to remember, one might ask. <laughs> Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, I guess. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I think the uh, the cover, perhaps, of a book makes it sort of visual imprint in your mind. And e-books don't usually have that very much, so it's a little bit tougher to remember them visually. Yes, I suppose. I mean, there is. Yes, I mean, books. Are, that's a that's a very good point because books are aesthetic objects. That's what that's in in every way. So you, the the feel of the book in the hand, uh, the um, all of the. I've got a friend here in Ireland who's a poet called Kieran Carson, and and Kieran Carson uh, claims that uh, he, he you can take a book from his shelf and blindfold him and wave the book under his nose and simply by from the smell he will be able to identify for you uh, what what the book is. Now, I, do, I, I rather doubt that, but you can appreciate, I suppose, the idea that there is, the book in itself is a thing that we're attached to. We've, we've become, a, basically, we are paper people. Books have become attached to us. We've become attached to books. We're attached to paper right from the day we're born, if you think about it. As soon as we're born, out you pop, and one of the first things that happen is somebody's going put a little tag around your wrist where they've printed off some uh, information data about, uh, about where you were born, when you were born. And obviously then throughout life you start to collect all sorts of various other pieces of paper. Even now, it's not by no means have we moved towards a, a digital culture. So you, you collect um, 
certificates, etc., etc., marriage certificates, divorce certificates, uh, certificates in school, um, and also you are recorded in various ways through paper and on paper. So, for example, today, if I just, obviously this isn't going to work on a, um, a podcast, but I'm just removing the paper that I don't know, you probably can't hear the rustling here, I'm removing the paper that is in my pocket that I have picked up just today. So, here we have, hold on. I've got a train ticket, one receipt, two receipts, three, these are all paper receipts, three receipts, four receipts, cash, uh, a loyalty card for a coffee shop, and so that's what, that's just pieces of paper that I've collected today. So it's still, we are still encumbered with this stuff. It sticks to us the whole time. Does this um, did this influence you in any way in terms of choosing what kind of paper to use for your book? Because I have to say, the paper in your book is just completely gorgeous. Oh. It's very thick, yeah. and uh, it, it's not like many books nowadays, where the paper is as thin as possible to sort of... I don't know if it's to save space or whatever it is. Yeah, but I, was, I was lucky enough, because it was a book about paper, the publishers let me choose the paper that the book would be produced on, which was a, a kind of, uh, I th- I'm not sure, you've probably got the, um, the the US edition, which I think is slightly different to the UK edition, but um, yeah. it's I think it's, it's mostly uh, it's a mix of uh, recycled um Oh, I can't. I can't think. But it's. A, I, I got to choose a particular paper stock, which was very, extremely pleasing. Um, so that's one of the advantages, I suppose, of writing a book about paper is that your publisher will say to you, "Yes, why don't you choose the paper that the book is written on?" But certainly in, in my everyday life as well, I would be reasonably fussy about the paper that I use. Obviously, I'd try to use as much recycled paper as possible. Um, but then I am, like many writers, I suppose, rather addicted to. Uh, using notebooks of various kinds, um, it's addictive. It's, yeah. 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 One of the most addictive um, types of paper is uh, money. And um, <laughs> in your chapter, Ornamenting Facade of Hell, um, I love that name, by the way, you say that paper money is the embodiment of capitalism. Yes. Could you talk a bit about that? Well, I suppose, I mean, this is how, um, it, so economies are driven by, uh, still, effectively, by paper money. Um, so paper money, if you like, lies behind um, the, the, the kind of electronic digital money. So paper rem- always remains the kind of ghost in the machine. If you have electronic and digital uh, forms of paper, the, the actual thing, paper itself, lies behind it in some way. Uh, and so, obviously, capitalism develops, if you like, at a certain point in time, which, lo and behold, is the point in time at which we were able to produce paper money so that we're no longer limited to, we can create money, if you like, by fiat. This is a great thing. If you're a bank, you can decide you're going to increase the money supply. Lo and behold, if you've got a printing press, that's a piece of cake. If you're working, if you like, on with wampum or some other form of kind of hard material money, you've got a real problem because you have to go and find some more cowrie shells or something. So you can generate cash and you can exchange it at an extremely rapid rate uh, without too much problem. And obviously then you have ex- bankers drafts, etc., etc. The whole thing flows from 
our, uh, the ability uh, to have this thing that we can decide is a container of value that is extremely durable but can also at the same time be produced very cheaply and efficiently and can be transferred from person to person without too much trouble. So it's, it's brilliant. <laughs> it's interesting. I saw the other day um, you talk a little bit about games in your book. Yes. And uh, I saw a monopoly where they had replaced the paper money with some sort of credit card machine thing. Mm. Um, I, I'm not sure if you've seen that, but I wonder. I haven't. And I, do you know what? I'm not sure that's going to catch on. What do you think? Yeah, I never played it. I, I actually had the uh, the game, and then I couldn't be bothered to play it. Like Monopoly, one of the things that I, I um, became particularly interested in when I was writing the book was the history of games and uh, board games in particular in the 19th century because the, the ways in which we use paper are not only for uh, money, for finance, if you like, and they're not only for fine art, but it's also for our daily amusement of ourselves and our families. So jigsaws, uh, games like Monopoly, uh, board games in that sense, cards, playing cards, um, etc., etc. All of this becomes possible and available when you have, again, this very durable, light, flexible, printable stuff that you can do stuff on. Uh, it's, it is a, an extreme, it is, when you, when you start to study, it's one of those things where you think, oh my goodness, this is one of the most astonishing man-made materials that has ever been invented. We really take it for granted, don't we? Yes, I mean, that's, we take everything for granted, that's normal, that's what human beings do. If we didn't take everything for granted, I think, isn't it, Coleridge, you said if you stood on the, if a man stood on the top of some pools and was able to remember everything that he saw, his head would explode or something like that. I mean, he didn't say that, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, we have to take things for granted. And I, I suppose one of the things that writers like to do is occasionally try and take things that are taken for granted and say, oh, what about this? Look at this. Yeah, sometimes people say that about sociology as well as being the study of the painfully obvious. <laughs> yes, that'll do. That's excellent. I might take I might take that as my motto. Yes, <laughs> painfully obvious will do <laughs> as my as my new family motto. I would definitely have that. That is absolutely spot on. Yeah. Words, words to live by. Mm. How how did paper take over advertising? Uh, well, once. In the 19th century, obviously you have advertising before the 19th century, but in the 19th century, you have, if you like, a perfect storm because you have the development of uh, mass consumer goods through industrialization. You have uh, the, the more people, obviously, able to consume things and inevitably uh, manufacturers and retailers and wholesalers want to sell stuff to them. And so paper, lo and behold, becomes this absolutely perfect material on which I, as a, a manufacturer or producer of goods, can announce to the world that they need to, to purchase this. So what happens, particularly with billboards in London, now Dickens writes about this at great length, in, but not great length, but here and there in his novels, um, this idea that London becomes this kind of place 
place that is stuck together with paper because there are so many um, advertisements and billboards everywhere, you can't move for them. And obviously in America it then becomes uh, extremely important in terms of the development of a kind of, if you like, um, uh, kind of late uh, and then uh, mid and uh, industrial capitalism. It's absolutely, it's just, it's a kind of fuel for modern economies. That's what the paper is the stuff that we have used to run our economies on in all sorts of ways. And advertising would be one obvious um, aspect and facet of that. And what about architecture? Yes, I think um, as I started to think about other uses of paper, I became fascinated by some really, really astonishing works um, produced by an architect in particular called uh, Shiguru Man, who uh, he has uh, produced cardboard uh, houses and shelters, temporary shelters, but also permanent structures, which are made from cardboard. He uses these uh, temporary structures uh, in earthquake zones and disaster zones because they can be transported and put there, again, very light, very cheap, can be quickly produced um, and put up very quickly and are in extremely um, uh, waterproof, so they can be used uh, in, in a way that he's uh, designed them. So it's really a, a quite extraordinary material that can be used, if you like, for, to produce money, to produce an advertisement, to produce uh, clothing, um, uh, buildings, and obviously architecture traditionally has been conducted on paper, um, uh, it's still if somebody, let, let's say you wanted an extension on your home uh, and you get in touch with an architect, they're going to pop round. Now they might these days bring round their iPad or whatever it is with them and sit down with you and go through some ideas, etc., etc. But the chances are they'll also pull out a pad and get a pen and a piece of paper and do some sketches because that's how that's how it's always been done, and I'm sure that is how it will continue to be done for for, for a long time as well. You tell some really uh, interesting stories in the book about origami, um, something that uh, the last time I really heard of it was when I was a child. I don't know if somehow I associate it with... You are missing uh, out. All I'm saying is you need yeah. to get back into that. This is one of one, one of life's great pleasures is doing origami. When I was a child, like you, I, 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 I loved origami. I, when I was a child, there used to be a... TV program uh, on British television that came on just about when you got home from school and I would come home from school and I would sit down and I'd put on the TV and there would be this television program that was just called Origami and it was presented by a man called Robert Harbin and Robert Harbin would just sit there look straight at the camera and he would say something along the lines of today children we're, I'm going to teach you how to make a jumping frog or something like that and then he would sit there and he would just, the program only lasted for five minutes maybe not even for five minutes and he would just show you how to make do the folds to make something so I was always interested in origami as a child and kind of maintained that interest as I grew older and I was particularly fascinated by origami as uh, I suppose as an art form uh, but also as an example of what can be made from paper the idea that paper you have a square piece of paper and from that using with no cuts 
folding only, you can create these extraordinary things, creatures, buildings, all sorts of things. There's a brilliant guy uh, called Robert Lang, who's a, who's a brilliant uh, American origamist, is one of the best if people are interested in looking into kind of cutting-edge origami. But I suppose for my purposes, that origami served as a very useful metaphor about how from a simple sheet of paper, you can make all of these extraordinary things. It's to do with its, its, its foldability, its flexibility, its, its fungibility, all of those sorts of things. Could you tell us a little bit about how it originated um, in the West? Because you did talk about, there was a story about a lady who got into it later in life. and uh... Oh, yes, Lillian Oppenheimer. Yes, Lillian Oppenheimer um, was a lady who, uh, so, so we have an idea, I think, sometimes that uh, origami is this kind of mystical art form that somehow came to the West from Japan and is a, this ancient thing. And then to a certain extent, that is the case. But origami uh, as a popular activity really was uh, uh, kind of not invented by, but it was um, really promoted by a small group of people, in particular a woman called Lillian Oppenheimer, uh, who set up the Origami Center of America in New York, I think early 50s, mid 50s, and her husband had died, and she was always interested in paper folding, which people had uh, kind of, uh, she, she'd gone to some evening classes, but she created this thing in her apartment in New York where people would come and, start and swap uh, folding ideas and techniques and uh, really origami as a, as a popular art form and activity and a craft activity really grows out of uh, her pioneering work and then there's this other amazing chap Gershon Legman who's a, who's a guy who uh, his parents wanted him to become a rabbi uh, he didn't become a rabbi he, became, he in fact went to work for Alfred Kinsey kind of doing a kind of he was a researcher into sexual practices and uh, but he then became very interested in origami uh, how those two things are connected I will leave to your listeners' imagination, but um, he was very, um, uh, again, promoted origami along with Robert Harbin, who's the guy I used to watch on TV. And, of course, then there is this um, extraordinary great paper folder uh, called uh, Yoshizawa, who really was the great 20th century Japanese paper folder whose work was promoted by, brought to the West by people like Legman and Lena Oppenheimer and others. One of the uh, the sadder stories in the book, or well, I found it quite sad, is the story of um, Hitler, British Prime Minister Chamberlain, and a piece of paper from 1938. Could you tell us that story? I found it really fascinating. Yes, the Munich Agreement. This is where, where this is where Chamberlain uh, flies to Munich, and he is he believes that it's possible. Um, whether or not he actually believes this, I mean, historians have debated this, but. Um, uh, he thinks it's possible that if he if he just gets uh, the Führer's signature on a piece of paper, uh, then everything is going to be okay. It's, it's going to be fine. And I suppose, and then he flies back, of course, um, to what was uh, then a very small airport in London, and he comes out of the plane, and he has this piece of paper in his hand. And uh, he, he famously uh, talks about the idea that this in some way might guarantee peace in our time. And this is a, an illusory uh, a wish or a promise, if you like, because he, he, in a sense, I suppose, I, again, I use it in a metaphoric sense in the book, because he, Chamberlain, believes that 
paper and what you write on paper still matters and that, it, it, that is in some way a guarantee. And of course, Hitler is far beyond that point. Uh, and this is, uh, uh, he's really um, I, uh, laughing about it, the idea that, you know, th this might be a guarantee of anything at all. So again, I think that's probably 1938 is an interesting turning point in the history of paper because, and the history of, idea, uh, of ideas, because uh, this is a point at which there is, there's no guarantee, this stuff is not a guarantor any longer. It's not to be trusted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in a way, it's kind of very symbolic of, um, of human beings in general. Paper matters as long as it matters to people. And once it stops mattering to people, then it stops mattering. Yeah. I guess in that way, he has to uh, assume that the other person is not a sociopath. And uh, in this case, he, he could not assume that. No, no. And, you know, it's, it's, probably, it's probably a good lesson to learn, isn't it? And obviously, I mean, the, the, the history of uh, paper and its use in politics government and in warfare I think is very interesting it's its role um, as you know it's being used as, uh, as a, it can be used very effectively as a kind of armor um, it's obviously used for propaganda purposes uh, during wars and in politics and government uh, paper uh, plays a central central role central function it is it is part of the, the, the base structure upon which the whole edifice is built that's true and we still trust it uh, instead of having an oral agreement, we, you know, yes. want things written on paper because yes. somehow that makes it more, more real. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an external sign of internal, uh, you know, in a kind of, um, in a Catholic sense, if you like. <laughs> so if people are interested in reading your book, uh, where can they find it? Is it in most bookstores? I, I would say most bookstores. I might say, one might say one or two bookstores. I'm sure they'd be able to find it. They they could probably find it if they if uh, uh, doubtless if they went to Amazon, uh, which would be rather amusing. But if you have an independent bookshop near you, why don't you go to that independent bookshop and try and keep them in business and put in a massive order for for you and all of your friends uh, to 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 buy the book. Yes, it is. It's certainly available um, if you if you you snuffle it out. And I have to ask, is it available as an e-book? Or would that just be wrong? <laughs> you know, funnily enough, I thought, I thought initially when I, when I started writing the book, I said to my editor, you know, wouldn't it be really funny if this book that was a history of paper was only available as an e-book? Um, but he didn't really find that as amusing as I did. So, no, currently it's only available as a, as a, as a hard copy book. Um, uh, so that, that you would have to actually get a hold of it. And then you can write in the margins to your heart's content. It's true. Or use it to prop up the table, which, you know, is another very useful thing that uh, a book can do. Um, I'm sorry? Could you say that last part again? You could, I don't you could use it to prop up a table, which, again, is <laughs> a use of yes, a, a paper that we sometimes ignore. This is true. Ian, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. One day I'll come to Canada and we'll, we'll sit down and we'll, we'll talk some more. Absolutely, yes, and probably with a piece of paper in hand. Yeah, yeah, let's hope so. You have been listening to an interview with Ian Sampson, author of the book Paper, an Elegy. This is your host, Annie Sipakaya. Thank you for listening to New Books in Sociology. See you next time.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.